Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, a podcast that started as an outlet for us to regularly trash talk Courtney Love, but has blossomed into so much more. Like a vehicle for Mark to regularly trash talk Pitchfork. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. Thomas. Hello, Marcus. Buenos dias. Como estas? Très bien. Oh, wrong language. Muy bien. E too? I'm good. So, Mark, I apologize. I am away from them, but uh, we may hear some little monkey-like squealing. I am on puppy duty all week. Ooh. We have eight puppies right now, so... It's an interesting, an interesting life I'm living. I make some questionable life choices on the regular. Like this one time I started a podcast with a friend from high school. Always a mistake. How's Colorado life, Mark? Not too bad. Aside from somebody spending $700 of my money on DoorDash, not giving me any, and then my car crapping out. Oh, man. All within a 24-hour span of also losing power and it deciding to snow. So. Wow. Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Do you know what they got at DoorDash? No, it was a handful of different purchases, but the card company's taking care of it and reimbursed the funds, so. The thing that really grinds my gears on that is <laughs> I think the people already have the food. There's nothing you can do. You just bought some schmucks some food. Yep, and it's not like DoorDash really cares anyway. It's not like any company cares anymore about customers. All right, here's Mark as the old man yelling at the clouds. What's important, though, is I had an onion on my belt, which was the style of the day. <laughs> But other than that, we've actually been uh, moving things along with some new artists. I think we've briefly teased before that had some stuff going on at Burrow that couldn't quite talk about. But yesterday, we finally officially announced that we're working with a new artist, Regan Ashton, to help on his next release, which we haven't officially announced yet. But Well, congratulations, sir. By the time this comes out, we'll be closer to officially announcing that album. And it's really good, and I'm super excited for that to come out and everyone to hear it. And Regan's someone who's been a friend for a while now, and he's been in a few other bands. Most notably, he had a fairly successful mid-level punk band out of Salt Lake called Problem Daughter, who was really good. Uh, you've talked about Problem Daughter before. Nice. Good for me. I like them, so not surprising. Congrats, Burrow Baracho Records. So that's fun, and we've still got a handful of other albums in the pipeline that are pretty much ready for release in the next year. And we've got at least one other artist that we've been courting. Nice. Yeah, it's it's exciting, and hopefully we can do better for them than. <laughs> Sorry. I was gonna take a cheap shot at Columbia Records, but then we've got a. Uh, Airplane flying over. The plane, the plane. I'm not too far from, I think it's Buckley Air Force Base, which happens to be part of the base they've turned into the Space Force Base. But lately they've been doing a lot of jet flyovers and they'll fly pretty low and you can hear them coming and just kind of like rumbles for a minute. Nice. Okay, so you want to take that stab at Columbia Records? I was going to, but now I'm more curious about how the subject of this episode would feel about Space Force. Neat good. Can't imagine that the subject of this episode would have a problem with NASA, but Space Force is probably a different yeah. a different beast. A lot of the album that we're talking about, which is Evil Empire from Rage Against the Machine, is directed at the man. their beef with the military. So if they have as big of a problem with just a military presence on Earth, I imagine they probably have a problem with a galactic military presence. Would you say it's a problem with the military in specific or the man? There's definitely an anti-police bias in here, too. I think to a degree both. I think it's yeah. the military as a symbol for power going unchecked. And so to that degree, any instrument or organization that the man wields to maintain that power and force their influence. 
But on the subject of Rage Against the Machine, what are your feelings? I don't know if you know this or not, Mark, but I am a Rage Against the Machine fan. I believe I did know that. I liked them in high school. I think part of the reason you and I liked them was the music is really good. Tom Morello is an amazing guitar player. Zach has magnificent hair that we're both jealous of. True. And when we would drive in the car and sing to Rage, there was a lot of opportunity to loudly exclaim the F word. (laughs) Do you remember what your introduction to the band was? You. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. I think when I met you was about the same time I was introduced to Rage myself. I had never heard of them until freshman year. Mm -hmm. And I remember that it was that incredibly daunting and self-conscious period going into high school where it was like, I don't know a lot of people. I don't know what to expect. And, you know, just being at that in-between age. But I was in marching band. Evil Empire had been released just a couple months prior. And from day one, that seemed like it was the unofficial soundtrack for the drumline. And it was the one thing that was the unifier for the drumline. Not everybody on the line or in the pit necessarily got along or ran in the same circles, but everybody liked that album. Nice. And I remember one of the seniors was a guy named Dave who was also in my photojournalism class, and he also was on the lacrosse team. He played goalie. It was also was one of those things where we would listen to and play to kind of get pumped up before lacrosse games. And we ended up becoming friends because we were doing a lot of the same things. And so I think this album was one of the, if not the most influential of my high school years, or at least my early high school years. I think maybe something, you know, down the line, like something to write home about or clarity might be the only thing I can think of right off that would possibly give this a run for its money for that title. So I'm glad then that I could in turn be a good influence on you and bring you along that ride. You were. You were playing some angsty, angry, screamy music. And freshman year, that's what I was into. And sophomore year, that's what I was into. And then junior year, that's what I was into. And then we got sad. (laughs) Yeah, but I think I'm also still into it. I am too. The next big album I remember hitting me with that kind of angry, fast tempo, upbeat music was probably uh, my favorite Armenian heavy metal band. You know, Beck is neither Armenian nor heavy metal, right? (laughs) My first intro to was uh, Evil Empire, and then I went backwards to Rage Against the Machine. Same. And of course, jumped on board with the Battle of Los Angeles when it came out. Which we'll talk more in depth in when we get you know, to that episode later down the line. Yeah, we will. Like you, Evil Empire was the introduction, and then I have a very specific memory of hearing the first album for the first time. Thanks had it, and I listened to it coming back from a band competition. So thank you, thanks. What a rad nickname. Good kid. Any idea what happened to him? I think like most people, he moved to Austin, and I never paid attention after that. Hmm. I am glad that you mentioned that Zach had really great hair, because it's true. And it was something that we could focus on and get behind because I've never entirely been on board with his or the band's politics. But then again, I'm never really on board with most people's politics. So whatever. But while that may be the case, I still support basic things like freedom of speech and appreciate the exchange of ideas, especially from people with good hair. (laughs) Even if those ideas are extreme and, you know, revolutionary. And also when somebody like Zach is able to articulate them clearly and intelligently plead their case. Because we shouldn't be complacent with the status quo and we should constantly be questioning government and holding authority accountable. These shouldn't be extreme ideas. You know, you don't have to worry about your political ideology not aligning. Former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan's favorite band was Raging Against the Machine. So just know you and Paul Ryan would have fun together. Well, unlike Paul Ryan, Rage Against the Machine has never made fun of me for my opinion. (laughs) And as a result, I have never walked that opinion back. (laughs) He did an interview shortly after Morello and the band called him out on missing the point of the band and saying that he never claimed that they were his favorite and someone else had always been his favorite. Led Zeppelin. Mm, Dang. (laughs) I guess Ryan and I do have some similar tastes in music. You know, usually when I saw Paul Ryan, I usually think, man, this guy reminds me of Mark. (laughs) I recognize that my personal ideologies and those of the band have never been fully in line. But there is a fundamental respect for the work they were trying to do, in addition to them doing work, like you said, just being amazing musicians. They are. But they weren't always amazing musicians. At a point, they weren't amazing musicians because they were wee little babies. Zacharias Manuel de la Roca was born in Long Beach, California, to parents of Mexican-American descent. His great-grandfather actually fought against the establishment in the Mexican Revolution. His grandfather was an agricultural laborer, and his father, Beto, was a muralist. 
When Zach was six, his parents got a divorce and he moved with his mother to Irvine, where his mother earned a PhD in anthropology. And from a young age, each of these figures had a strong influence in forming Zach as a person. He saw the impact of revolution, the struggle and disparity of the working and lower class, and the importance of arts and education. And growing up in a predominantly white Irvine, he also saw racism. In elementary school, Zach made friends with a classmate named Tim. Tim Comerford. In junior high, they both played guitar and were in a band called Juvenile Expression. However, a few years later, Tim would switch to bass. And fun fact, in 2014, Paste Magazine labeled Tim number eight on their list of the 20 underrated bass guitarists. Hmm. In 1987, when Mark and Tom were wee lads, Zach joined a straight-edge band called Hard Stance. And by the following year, the lead singer had quit the band, so Zach stepped up to fill the void on Mike, and his guitar playing took the back seat so he could focus on being a vocalist. During this member shift, the band changed its name to Inside Out, and they released an EP in 1990 on Revolution Records titled No Spiritual Surrender. Inside Out started working on a full-length album. However, Zach wanted the band to move into more political areas and incorporate his growing fondness for hip-hop. The guitarist who the band brought in to take over for Zach in that role wanted his hardcore band to write music that was more of a focus inspired by Hare Krishna. I'm pretty certain that's a real claim that I found, or at least someone is cashing in all their credibility chips on Wikipedia to perpetuate an incredibly clever lie. (laughs) I really want to hear a hardcore Hare Krishna (laughs) band, but uh, their creative differences led to a band breakup in 1991. During those years, Zach was also in a couple other bands. He played guitar in a band called Farside. Zach also played drums for a band called No Foreign Answer. And following the breakup of Inside Out, Zach started a band with a gentleman named John Purcelli, who was a contact of his through Revelation Records. And while they were trying to figure out what that band would be called, Zach suggested a band name that was a name that would have been Inside Out's unfinished album title had they actually stuck together and figured out that hip-hop Hare Krishna balance. However, Purcelli felt that the name Rage Against the Machine was too long to serve as a viable band name. In Ron Howard voice, it wasn't. In addition to that band then going nowhere because they didn't have nearly as good of a name, De La Roca began embracing the hip-hop and would freestyle at clubs around LA. And it was at one of those shows where he met another fellow musician who was also on the back end of a band breakup by the name of Tom Morello. Thomas Baptist Morello was born in Harlem, New York. Tom's mother was an American citizen abroad and his father a native of Kenya when they met in Nairobi while attending a pro-democracy rally. Now, there's a lot of political influence from his father's side of the family since his father served as the first ambassador to the UN representing Kenya. His great uncle was the first elected president of Kenya and others. However, his dad apparently also turned out to be kind of a jerk. When his mother discovered she was pregnant with Tom, his parents moved to New York and married. However, when Tom was only 16 months old, his father denied paternity and moved back to Kenya, and his mother moved and raised Tom in Libertyville, Illinois. When he was 13, Tom bought his first guitar and joined his first band, which was a cover band called Nebula. They played songs from bands like Steve Miller, BTO, and Paul Ryan's favorite Led Zeppelin. A few years later in high school, he formed his own band, which was called Electric Sheep. To play bass, he recruited a classmate and friend by the name of Adam Jones, who would go on to be better known as the guitarist for the band Tool. Much of Morello's original material for Electric Sheep was, surprise, surprise, political, and reflected his own developing left-leaning and anarchistic ideology. And following high school, Morello studied political science at Harvard. And at Harvard, he played in a cleverly named college band, Board of Education. (laughs) The known chemist and Nobel laureate, Carolyn Bertozzi, played keyboard in that band. Hmm. And since you love a good Battle of the Band story, (laughs) in 1986, Board of Education won the Ivy League Battle of the Bands. Good job. That's the same year that Morello graduated and moved to L.A., where he joined the band Lockup and, to pay the bills, held a series of different jobs. And on that subject, he said, When I graduated from Harvard and moved to Hollywood, I was unemployable. I was literally starving, so I had to work menial labor, and at one point, I even worked as an exotic dancer. You can make decent money doing that job. People do what they have to do. 
He then got a job, which in the end proved even more demeaning, working in the office of U.S. Senator Alan Cranston. He said, I've never had any real desire to work in politics, but if there was any ember burning in me, it was extinguished working in that job because of two things. One of them was the fact that 80% of the time I spent with the senator, he was on the phone asking rich people for money. He had to compromise his entire being every day. The other was the time a woman phoned up to the office and wanted to complain that there were Mexicans moving into her neighborhood. I said to her, ma'am, you're a damn racist. And she was indignant. I thought I was representing our cause well, but I got yelled at for a week by everyone. I thought to myself that if I'm in a job where I can't call a damn racist a damn racist, then it isn't for me. Damn right. In 1989, Lockup released their debut album on Geffen, but is apparently the first Geffen band we've talked about who didn't have a smash hit. And in 1991, Morello met a fellow musician on the back end of a band breakup by the name of Zach De La Roca. Full circle. Fun fact, Morello's former high school bandmate Adam had also moved to L.A. and was pursuing music and had gotten connected with a singer named Maynard James Keenan. And it was actually Morello who would introduce those two to a drummer he knew in passing by the name of Danny Carey. Hmm. So apparently Morello is responsible for Tool. That's what I'm hearing. So Tom and Zach meet each other and hit it off. But it was Tom's friend and former lockup drummer, John Knox, who suggested the two should jam. And jamming also seemed to go pretty well. So Zach brought in an old friend and former high school bandmate, Tim, to play bass. And Knox was either busy with other stuff or not feeling it because even though it was his idea, he never joined them. But that's okay because Morello reached out to a drummer he knew named Brad Wilk. He knew Wilk because at a point, Brad had auditioned to play drums for lockup. Fun fact, in addition, to auditioning for and not making lockup brad had also auditioned for pearl jam and not made that band either oh by the time that they were mixing tin they knew that they were going to have a drummer turnover and so pearl jam was already a band on the brink of making it big and he auditioned and it turned out that he and pearl jam bassist jeff they just didn't necessarily have a strong vibe they didn't connect and as the rhythm section kind of need that so brad wilk was not the drummer for pearl jam but i think it worked out okay for him why is that? Because he actually was accepted to be the drummer for Rage Against the Machine, which Zach also had success pitching as a band name. Talking about the members of the band, Brad has said, We're like a microcosm of Los Angeles in some ways. We come from different backgrounds, different cultures, and Wilk makes a solid point there because one of the strengths of the band is how each member contributes so much of themselves to form the whole. Mm -hmm. The band really is a convergence of influences and sounds and ideas that get amalgamated and distilled into something more. It's not always a smooth process, and we'll touch on that in greater detail in a minute, but it is something wholly unique and unapologetic apologetically distinct so the band quickly self-produced a 12 song cassette that more or less served as their demo and while multiple labels were interested in rage the band signed with epic records and released their self-titled debut in november of 1992 and in an interview with LA Times, Morello admitted, I never thought that we would sell a record. I thought the politics would be too alienating and too extreme. But I'm proud the music is extreme. The politics are extreme. When you open your eyes to what's going on in this world, you realize that a sort of moderate medicine is no good to cure an extreme illness. And thanks in part to nonstop touring, which included three months on Lollapalooza, as well as opening slots for suicidal tendencies and House of Pain. Plus, being pre-internet, there was actually a word-of-mouth buzz on the edginess of the band, at least in the UK, following BBC Radio 1 playing the unedited version of Killing in the Name <laughs> during their Top 40 show. The Rage Against the Machine self-titled debut would go on to sell 3 million copies worldwide by April of 96, which also happened to be when their second album, Evil Empire, was released. Now, since Mark and I are both big fans of math, <laughs> we did a little number crunching. And for those of you paying attention, it was over three years for the band to release a follow-up to that debut. And in the pop culture world, that's a very long time. And for the band, despite the growing success or because of it, it was a very turbulent time. Mm -hmm. Aside from the extreme ideas and opinions each member carried, they also spent pretty much all of 1993 on tour, which meant cramped quarters on a tour bus, no real personal space, and spending every waking moment with the same group of dudes. So in early 1994, when the band entered a recording studio in Atlanta, it was easy to say they were sick of each other and an attempt to collaborate didn't go very well many as 23 new tracks were recorded with producer brendan o'brien but those tracks were ultimately scrapped as tensions rose to a boiling point and fighting within the band reached an impasse 
At this point, accounts of what followed differ, and depending on who tells it, the band either outright broke up on the DL, or they somehow found common ground to agree on a hiatus, which to me kind of sounds like a level of reasonable decision-making that at the time might have been beyond them, but we don't really know. So instead of speculating about it further, I want to take a minute to talk about who they had brought in to produce their second album, Mr. Brendan O'Brien, and O'Brien was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I think it's pronounced Hotlanta. I'll show myself out. Thank you. We are now accepting applicants for a new host on Once Every Two Weeks. O'Brien played guitar in local bands like The Pranks and Samurai Catfish, and it was with the latter that he started to dabble in recording and quickly became proficient in the studio as an engineer to the point where he was the go-to guy to record quick and cheap. Essentially, he was Butch Vig on the opposite side of the country. Good call. He had had early success after he engineered and played a lot of parts on the debut of a band called Black Crows. He followed that by producing the debut of a little band called Stone Temple Pilots. And in addition to their album Core, he engineered and mixed Blood Sugar Sex Magic for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He has produced a majority of the catalog for both STP and Pearl Jam. He worked on albums for Kansas, King's X, Temple of the Dog, The Jayhawks, Aerosmith, Paul Westerberg, Soundgarden, Neil Young, Matthew Sweet, Lifehouse, The Offspring, Train, Mastodon, Supergroup, Velvet Revolver, Incubus, Third Day, Seether, The Fray, The Killers, ACDC, Chris Cornell, and Bruce Springsteen. And that's not even the full list. And the Rage crew must have thought he was doing something right because he would go on to produce Evil Empire. Spoiler alert. The band didn't stay in Broken Up Hiatus. He did produce their second album, as well as their third, in addition to working with post-rage projects such as Audio Slave, Tom Morello's The Night Watchman, and Supergroup Prophets of Rage. And I have to say, O'Brien might be the best rock producer I somehow had never known about until researching this album, and I'm very much ashamed to have not known his name before now. Yeah, I'm feeling the same. That's an incredible and solid body of work. Although if I were to try and justify not knowing him sooner, it would be because much of his work was exclusively as an engineer or mixer and not the more glamorous role of producer. Okay, back to the band. Okay. Regardless of what you call the time the band spent following the failed recording session in Hotlanta, they were back together and back to playing shows by mid-1995. And by the fall of 95, they decided that they would make a second try to record their second album. And for their second attempt at album number two, they brought back O'Brien, but decided that instead of caving into the long-standing capitalist tradition of spending way too much money on studio time, they might be able to get along better and actually finish the album if they were working in a more familiar surrounding. So they made a few modifications to their regular practice space and recorded the entire album there talking about that process with mtv in 1996 morello said why spend two thousand dollars a day in some fancy recording studio trying to recreate the great vibe that we have right here so we literally knocked a hole in the wall rented the room across the hall and ran wires over the hallway And Zach said, we weren't going to go in and play in a studio that just had no environment whatsoever. You get in some of these places and it's like you're walking into a dentist's office. I've had my teeth cleaned. Thanks a lot. I don't want that. And maybe that did the trick or maybe it was taking that break or maybe they just got lucky. Regardless, they did manage to finish a second album. And on April 16th, 1996, Rage Against the Machines sophomore effort Evil Empire was released. Fun fact, in the album credits, Tim Comerford was listed as Tim Bob, which was part of an ongoing joke where he was never named outright. On other albums, he was listed as Tim.com and Y-Tim-K. Do you know where the name of the album came from? I do, but that's because I can see the notes. Did you know where the name of the album came from before doing research for the album? I think I did, but I wouldn't have remembered if you'd have asked me, but I think I remember this. Yeah, I don't know if I really knew either, but in the words of Zach, he says that the title actually came from a speech by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, and he addressed the Soviet Union as the evil empire. If you look at the atrocities committed by the U.S. in the later half of the 20th century, we feel that tag could easily describe the U.S., So it's a commentary on what the band felt was hypocritical U.S. foreign policy. That's interesting, Mark, but do you know where the album art came from? 
Yes. It's actually a painting of a comic book character in the 1940s who was known as Crime Buster. The painting was done by artist Mel Ramos, and the band had a few minor adjustments made to the cover from the original piece, most notably the letter on the boy's shirt, which had originally been a C for Crime Buster, was changed to the lowercase e. Huh, I guess you did. Well, stole my thunder. With regard to why it was selected, Zach said, If you look very closely at the boy's face, he symbolizes the power structure in the U.S. If you look at him, he's smiling as if he's in control. But if you look deeper into his face, you see that he's afraid because he knows what's coming. He knows that poor people in the U.S. are not going to suffer in the way they have suffered without taking action. Is that what you see? No. I just see, like, some adolescent white kid in a cape. He looks smug. He does kind of look smug. So you're right. Zach could be onto something there. Or we're pushing our ideologies onto art. Like we've mentioned before, Evil Empire came out three years after the self-titled album. And it's interesting how much that seemed to split reviews. Pretty much every review makes note of that fact. And the reviews were mixed. It's interesting looking at the press because you could easily tell who couldn't get over the time gap hang up. But it seemed the reviews were also equally mixed between two camps of those who claim the album shows growth and development and a wider range of influence from their first album and those who claim it doesn't live up to the rock power of the first. The second crowd was also mostly those who cried about having to wait so long for another Rage album. Personally, I think Evil Empire is, in fact, a broader showcase. Everything about the music is more nuanced. Both Morello's playing and De La Roca's vocal deliveries are more dynamic and display greater range rather than being set to brutal attack mode the whole time. And as such, the music goes in a lot of different places that it had not before. And on the whole, Zach more strongly embraces his role as MC and upped his flow. And as such, it's an achievement that stands at the top of their short catalog. Don't get me wrong, the first album is strong, but it's kind of a one-trick pony. And with Evil Empire, they take everything good from the first album and give it greater depths. Agreed. It's definitely more mature. I like Zach's voice a lot more. It's more... There's a lot more confidence behind it. You can hear what he's saying. He's a lot clearer, crisper, and he flows better. Absolutely. Now, if you've listened to our podcast before, then it'll come as no surprise that Mark is going to share with us a rather idiotic review from Pitchfork. Do you have one of those this time, Mark? I do. Pitchfork gave the album a 6.1 out of 10. Their review for this opened by referring to frontman Zach De La Roca as Perm Boy because it was so important to Pitchfork at the time to try and hair shame the band's frontman before anything else. They did go on to say, This record sounds so much like their debut, I can hardly tell the difference. There are some artists who put out a debut album and are never again capable of releasing an album as worthwhile. Evil Empire is no better or worse than these guys' 1993 self-titled debut. It's the exact same. No new ground is explored. It's just sad to see that the band hasn't evolved over three years. Uh, I think you were gracious with that, Mark, because the person who gave this review and was obviously wrong on so many things actually said it's it's exactly the effing same. True, but this is an episode about Rage Against the Machine, so we should watch the language. True, we'd hate to offend Zach or Tom. But once again, it just leaves me wondering why Pitchfork hates music so much. And maybe that isn't fair. I guess what I mean to say is, why does Pitchfork cling to music so closely when they don't know anything about it? Yeah, that sounds more right. But like we've said, not everyone hated the album, or is as idiotic as Pitchfork, and so petty about the band's hair. The LA Times wrote a solid and thoughtful review, giving the album three and a half out of four stars, and they articulated themselves in a way that Pitchfork should strive for. So, listen up, Pitchfork. Tom's going to read some highlights from that review. Rage Against the Machine's second album barges into an alternative rock world where discontent is routinely channeled into introverted abstraction and metaphor rather than a hard political agenda. The band tapped a constituency with its debut, but it still seems somehow unfashionable as it faces an audience that thinks the Molotov cocktail must be the cool thing to drink. Among prominently contemporary musicians, only Bruce Springsteen has confronted the human issue of undocumented Mexican immigrants to this degree. Zach De La Roca's rubbery, punk-edged rapping, Tom Morello's snarling arsenal of power chords, distressed squeals, bleeps, and shudders, and the unshakable Tim Bob Brad Wilk rhythm section create a hurtling, hammering sound that sweeps you into its momentum. It also puts you on edge, which is part of the idea. It is designed to focus anger, elevate energy, and boil blood. This is music to occupy buildings and closed streets by, and its ultimate success is really out of the band's hands. It's incomplete without some audience participation 
That one sounds much less like it was written by a guy who's prematurely balding and jealous of Zach de la Roca's hair, doesn't it? It does. However, I never thought about prematurely balding. I just figured it was some boring kid who had been raised in the suburbs who was jealous that he just had boring straight white hair. I mean, that's why I'm jealous. Same. The Chicago Tribune gave the album three stars, stating, De La Roca's confrontational style is unrelenting. Fortunately, Tom Morello's army of guitars provide textural variety from wayward spinouts to staccato assaults, whereas De La Roca is as one-dimensionally focused as a pit bull alone in a room with a bloody stake. Morello and his multi-personality guitar speak a more musical language that even those unpersuaded by Rage's political rants will find alluring. Entertainment Weekly wrote, Although cross-fertilization between rap and rock has been taking place since the days of Run DMC's Rockbox, a wholly successful merger seems to have eluded almost everyone, with the exception of the Beastie Boys. Rage Against the Machine's sample-free fusing of the two disparate yet compatible styles into one tightly wrapped visceral package may finally change that. Much of the credit for the album's invigorating sonic kick must go to guitarist Tom Morello, who establishes his killer riffs with an ear-grabbing array of effects. In Morello, hands guitars blare and grind and clang they shriek and whir and go bang jimmy hendrix granddaddy of guitar tricknology would be proud even if it's not always clear just what de la roca is so upset about the power and fury of the music comes through louder than bombs Spin gave it an 8 in a review that covered a lot of ground, saying Rage Against the Machine's second album, a full three years after its first, should by all means be over, daddy even less fashionable than Polka. But Evil Empire is more or less the first major rock album in years to be made as if grunge never happened. Tom Morello is a fine guitar player, heavy riffs exploding into starburst distortion, shards of melody that always managed to settle back to earth just in time for the beat. De La Roca may be the only rock singer in 1996 whose style is modeled less on Eddie V than on Chuck D, and he has come close to mastering the tricky internal rhymes, the stuttering flow, the outrage, and the rapid-fire alliteration that made Public Enemy's Nation of Millions one unquantifiable hip-hop masterpiece. Springsteen may have been wistful on his last album about mistreatment of Mexican-filled workers in America, but De La Roca wants to burn the place down. It's almost enough to make you believe there's still an underground in U.S. rock and roll. The Houston Chronicle gave it four stars in a review that closed by saying, The strength of Evil Empire is the music. The songs have a natural relationship with each other. Bulls on Parade, Vietnam, and Revolver roll together with seamless ease. At times, the songs are sensual. At times, they're aggressive. But they're always engaging. And the Chronicle is the only review I came across that makes the point about the way the songs play together, which is valid because the album does flow nicely song to song. Absolutely. And before jumping into the song by song portion of the episode, it's fair to point out that there is a lot that De La Roca puts into his lyrics. Mm -hmm. They're complex and layered to the point that up front, if we're being honest, we should state that there's too much to unpack without making the episode a thousand hours long. So for the sake of time, we're probably going to just gloss over a lot. And thanks for tuning in, folks. We hope you enjoyed this episode. (laughs) We couldn't do that. We've got to do the songs for the people of the sun. Track one, People of the Sun. Before you go anything, I have to say that the way this album opens, from that first sound, from the moment that the music started, I knew I liked this. I knew I liked Rage. It was just, it's so good. Yeah, it just grabs you and it pulls you in. So all those reviews who claim this album is just exactly like the first clearly weren't listening from the start because while this does open with Familiar Fury, the electric guitar that actually opens the album isn't riffing and it's not just shredding and it's not even making a melody. It's pure Tom Morello guitar sorcery. On the first album, in the liner notes, there's a disclaimer that reads, No samples, keyboards, or synthesizers used in the making of this record. It's a statement which Tumblr user Zaka Music succinctly put, When I read this phrase, I knew Tom Morello just invented a new instrument that was a lot more exciting than a piece of wood with six strings seemed to be. And... And that Tumblr user is completely right about that. Yeah, he is. While on the first album, Morello does find some impressive and inventive tones and textures throughout. Right off the starting line on Evil Empire, he's stepping his whole game up big time. And what Morello achieves here is an oscillating pitch created by scratching his guitar strings with an Allen wrench. 
because obviously that's how you should play a guitar. <laughs> it creates a vivid and distinct harmonic texture that is quickly joined by a solid kind of funky drum beat, a super beefy bass line, and De La Roca also stepping up his game by providing lead vocals that are delivered with his own urgent rap flow but done so in a way that during the verse, he isn't singing, but the pitch of the cadence of his delivery varies in a way that seems to be what is actually carrying the melody of the track. And, of course, all of that shifts instantly as soon as they hit the chorus, and there's a bit more of an actual guitar riff, and Zach is more yelling, but then they transition back just as smoothly out of it when they hit the start of the second verse. While this song is the opener for Evil Empire, which dropped in 96, this was an older song from the early days of the band, and they've been playing it live since as early as 1992, and this was their second single of the album. Now, lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words makes the song about the Zapatista movement in Mexico. Man, I'm thinking about what you said, how long it would take to break this down. Yep. It's dealing with the oppression of the indigenous people and them finding strength to rise up, right? Yes. The lyrics in here, he talks about, never forget the whip snapped you back, your spine cracked for tobacco, and like talking about them blood and death and really dark. Mm -hmm. And it keeps going back to the idea, but now you found a gun, your history, this is for the people of the sun. And uh, I would say this song does slap. (laughs) Nice. Now, since the song is about people taking up arms in a revolution, would you say those people would be like Bulls on Parade? I like it. Song two, Bulls on Parade. Bulls on Parade is the second track from the album, but the first single. This was listed at number one on Guitar.com's list of Rage's 20 Greatest Guitar Moments. As they put it, Bulls on Parade is the rage song that has it all. It's an ultimate demonstration of Morello's wide-ranging abilities, with its wacka-wacka-wah section bridging the immense opening. Guitar.com points out that Morello leaves his wah pedal half-depressed to give the verse a menacing gangster rap flavor. They then go on to say, The stellar centerpiece of the song finds Morello revealing his final scratching trick for the first time which is indeed an impressive technique where Morello makes the guitar sing like a record scratch for an impressive solo around the two-minute mark. However, while Guitar.com listed the song at number one, Cleveland.com only ranked the song number three on their list of Every Rage song. Then again, it's Cleveland, so what do they really know? I have no real beef with the city of Cleveland. I actually spent a lovely day there, but it just seemed odd that Cleveland.com would take the time to... (laughs) (laughs) Rank all of the Rage Against the Machine songs. What does Cleveland know about Rage Against the Machine? More than some people from our sponsor's website. Going to songfacts.com, I learned that Mental Myopa from the USA about this song said, This was originally written as a commercial jingle for Hot Pockets, who is partnering with Velveeta to introduce a new variety of Hot Pockets stuffed with Velveeta shells and cheese. The advertisements plan to use this song with the message to rally around the family to a meal with these pockets full of shells. Unfortunately, the new flavor of Hot Pockets never made it to the market, and we never had the opportunity to see those advertisements what's funny is that was one of the first things i found researching this album and i saw that and i was like this is so stupid tom is gonna read this (laughs) you knew where i was gonna go with the song meanings Uh, yeah i mean honestly i don't know if that would be better or worse than hard krishna hip-hop hardcore fusion (laughs) But lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make this song about the problem that is the military industrial complex and how it is a self-perpetuating machine. The Morello scratching is just next level. Yeah. On that subject, Morello said, We wanted a DJ in the band, but didn't have one. So early on, I became the designated DJ. It made me think about guitar in a different way and changed my style. Nice. Yeah. I.e., we didn't want to pay some other dude, so they said, hey, go figure this out, Tom. And he's like, meh, okay. That's how we uh, had to do things back in my time, and nope, I'm not going to make that joke. I think we can get into a problematic transition attempt, so I'm just going to go ahead and say, track three, Vietnam, was the third single for the album. And with this, we finally have a track with a similar rock approach that feels like the first record, complete with discernible power chords, and Zach using the F word, like, a lot. He used it enough that it offended your mother. I think any use would offend Karen, depending on the day. Let's be honest. I love the Wes Anderson way you wrote the lyrics for this album, and it's really noticeable here. 
Turn on the radio. Nah, cuss it. Turn it off. Fear is your only god on the radio. Nah, cuss it. Turn it off. I have this vivid memory of her being very upset about the song being played in her house. I think there are a few lines in here that probably gave her pause. But then again, I feel like there was a lot of things that you said that made her very upset about being set in her house. We said, Mark. We said. (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't my house, so I could never get in trouble for it. (laughs) The vibe from the rhythm section has a bit more soul to it. It's less of the first album metal approach and more in line with Evil Empire's hip-hop aspiration. So much so that by the end of the song, I realized that my neck was starting to get sore from involuntarily bobbing my head for the last three tracks. Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about the dangers of extreme talking heads like Rush Limbaugh. However, Zach manages to fit in bits about the Iran-Contra scandal as well as the Rodney King assault by the LAPD. Do you remember when Rush Limbaugh was an outlier? Now every news outlet, radio, and TV has to have their incendiary talking head. Ugh, anyway. Man, he is so good. I think the way he flows and the way he gets the lines out, it really hits hard, like the kickback from a powerful revolver. Ooh. Song four, Revolver. I do want to just talk about how much I like your opening description here, Mark, that this track starts with some wonderful Tom Morello guitar weirdness that starts off sounding like distorted whale songs and somewhere along the way transforms into sci-fi laser bursts. Mark, that is a poetic description. And uh, for that, we thank you. Well, thank you. I'm glad you appreciate my appreciation of Tom's guitar playing. Uh, Adam Wall messaged me. He wanted you to know he likes our podcast and says hello. Aw, thanks, Steve. I like you too. Your words are meaningless. Write a review. Go like it on the platforms. Now, all of those tones that you talked about, he achieves without synthesizers or advanced processing. It's just good old-fashioned, ridiculous pedal board, advanced guitar know-how, and probably a little sheer force of will. And all of it leads into a heavy guitar riff with heavy bass, and yup, you guessed it, heavy drums that push their way forward. And maybe the most surprising thing about it all is the realization that Zach waits to join the party for a full minute 20, at which point he enters right as the music shifts from their heavy gallop to a slow trot and his delivery matches the pace so it's kind of subdued and breathy like it's a forced half whisper but as soon as they hit the chorus they turn it all back up to 11 and it continues with those extreme dynamics through the rest of the track in a way that really gives the hard moments a greater sense of violence to them which in a way is fitting since lyrically the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about domestic violence I'm not really sure any of the music that we heard from Revolver could do as good of a job as your little ditty at charming any snakes. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do know that Snake Charmer is track five. Snake Charmer opens with some blistering drums, and it really sets the pace for a track that has that classic rage against the machine sense of urgency and importance. And there's this lovely little bit in the middle of the track where instead of a more hard rock guitar riffing, Tom goes off in a solo that sounds more like a car alarm. Which isn't the first time we've had a guitar solo that we've described like a car alarm. We talked about that on the Muse episode, and I had a realization back when I was editing the Muse episode. You had asked me if I had ever seen Muse, and I answered no. And I never did see Muse, but I did hear them once. They had played a show in Los Angeles at the Coliseum in support of Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine, for their 20th anniversary, put on this big festival that also had Rise Against and Lauren Hill and a few other bands. And my buddy Pedro and I, we went to it without tickets. We've had success in the past at a lot of shows, either getting tickets at the gate or finding a scalper because we're poor. But everybody at that show was charging like double face value. So we're like, screw that. But the LA Coliseum is an open air venue. So So we just sat on the curb outside of the Coliseum and just listened to everything. And unfortunately, Rage sounded terrible. Turns out our buddy Tony did get tickets and he went in and he confirmed that it wasn't just the fact that we were on the outside listening and something about that show. He says that they were bad. And I'm jealous of both Pedro and Tony because they're both from L.A. and a little older than us. And so they had seen Rage quite a few times between them back before the band initially broke up back in the heyday. I've been waiting since the Muse episode to do this episode so I can make that correction or adjust that prior comment. 
back to the album though track five was number 19 on that list from guitar.com who of snake charmer wrote it's an energized workout and absolutely stacked with towering riffs propelled by wilk and comerford's characteristic rock solid rhythm section each movement of the song is shaped by some sledgehammer morello work dynamically swerving in tandem with the beat we've just been schooled in rigorous riff craft Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about sheeple and greed. Snake Charmer is a song that didn't really stand out to me years ago when I listened to this album, and it still doesn't. It's it's not one of my favorites. Now, I'm not going to say that Snake Charmer is a bad song, or I would fast-forward this song while listening to Evil Empire. Actually, there's really no songs I would fast-forward. The, the whole album is great, but it doesn't stand out as one of my favorites. It's not as memorable as some of the other songs, and it's not one I would go out of my way to just play while I'm driving in the car. This is one that I think I actually enjoyed more than I remembered from years ago. It's not top three, but like you said, there's not a bad song on here, and there's not a song on here that I don't enjoy. Oh, I'm with you, Mark. It's a good song. Like I said, it's just not one of my favorites. There's nothing on this album that is really going to put me to sleep or tire me at all. Song six, Tire Me. This song was used in the background of a scene in the movie Higher Learning, but was not included on that soundtrack. It was also never released as a single. It never received any radio play. It never had a music video made for it, and it was never used commercially anywhere. But still, Tire Me somehow managed to not only get a Grammy nomination, but it even won that Grammy for Best Metal Performance in 1997. Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words makes the song about objectively separating truth from lies. In this instant, more specifically, Zach has said he wrote it to celebrate the death of Richard Nixon because he felt that after Nixon's passing, his legacy was getting dressed up because people have a habit of not speaking ill of the dead even when they deserve it, or because people were straight up out to clean up history. Yep. I don't think Rage regularly gets compared to Death Cab the Cutie, but at least thematically that reminds me of the line from their song Styrofoam Plates off of the photo album that says something like, he was a bastard in life, so he's still a bastard in death. <laughs> Love it. But people do have the habit of doing that, and it really is irritating. This does have my all-time favorite Rage Against the Machine moment, not just from this album, but from their entire catalog. Can I guess? You can. Is it I want to be Jackie Onassis? I want to wear a pair of dark sunglasses. I want to be Jackie O. Oh, 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 please don't die. Oh, I love that. I love that line. I love the sound of it, everything. It's a wonderful breakdown. Yep, it's beautiful. And I love sunglasses. I like it. Yep. You know, surprisingly, for all the time that I've spent in LA, I've never been rolling down Rodeo. You've never rolled down Rodeo with a shotgun? I've never driven down Rodeo Drive. As Texans, are we obligated to pronounce Rodeo correctly? I think we should pronounce it correctly. You can't fancy up a rodeo. I do like this song a lot. This is one of them that I blared all the time. From the start, this track might seem to have the glossiest rock approach to it of any song on the album. And as such, it was sent to radio stations as a promotional single, but it was never properly released as a single beyond that. And I think that easy, slick rock appeal helps give the track a greater contrast against the lyrics that were delivered in a way that feel like Zach is putting less of his angry edge on them. However, as the song progresses, there are moments where Morello's guitar work moves into places where it's once again scratching or once again car alarming in a way that creates sound textures that seem like they would be at home carrying the melody of any classic Ice Cube track. And under it all, it's the bass and drums that really keeps the song together and rolling. Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about class disparity and racism which is abundantly on display in places like Rodeo Drive. And other places where they need to mispronounce words like Rodeo to make themselves feel better about themselves. Now, I mentioned that the prior song had probably my favorite moment from any Rage album, but this track features some lines that stick out to me almost to that degree as some of the most poignant on the album, starting with... A thousand years they had the tools, we should be taking them. Cuss the G-Ride, I want the machines that are making them. That is deep. I think that is a great commentary on the consumerism mindset. You have these big corporations that are trying to get people to just buy and buy and buy rather than think about, like it says, you don't want the product, you want the machines that are making the products. But it goes on later in the song and says, the rungs torn from the ladder can't reach the tumor. One God, one market, one truth, one consumer. 
Just a quiet, peaceful dance. Such a good song. It is. And it brings us to... Song 8, Without a Face. This is kicked off with another oscillating guitar tone that gets kind of annoying kind of quickly, but there's also a funky drum beat and an equally funky, beefy bass line. Do you consider me funky, Mark? Not even a little bit. Okay. Back in May 27th, 1996, before playing this song, Zach made this short speech explaining the song. It seems as soon as the wall of Germany fell, the U.S. government was busy building one between the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Since 1986, as a result of a lot of the hate talk and hysteria that the government of the United States has been speaking, 1,500 bodies have been found on the border. We wrote the song in response to that. So clearly, lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about the struggle of Mexican immigrants and migrant workers. This one's pretty poignant, too. Mm-hmm. We're just opening it up. I got no card, so I got no soul. I think this one, he's just being a lot more straightforward rather than... Absolutely. ...using hyperbole and metaphor. Yep. Which a lot of the reviews did make comparison with Springsteen talking about these same issues. And Springsteen by no means was trying to dress them up in any nice kind of way. But those songs are still a little more romantic than any that Zach would write. Yeah, I agree. And it's lyrical themes that kind of carry over into the next track, track nine, Wind Below. Wind Below starts with a stuttering guitar effect that almost sounds like helicopter blades and is very reminiscent of when Morello uses the same effect a few years later on the band's cover of Springsteen's classic, The Ghost of Tom Joad. But once it hits the verse, the guitar puts up another part that sounds like it could be a classic West Coast rap loop. So the song ends up being another solid showcase of the rhythm section. The song is based in part on the essay The Southeast in Two Parts, which examines two revolutionary groups in Mexico who are described as, quote, the wind below as a result, their uprising in turn being described as brewing storms. And lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words makes the song about how corporate greed dominates and destroys the world. What makes you think it has anything to do with corporate greed, Mark? The lines where he names major corporations like GE and NBC and Disney and ABC. Yeah, he just can't seem to roll right with big business, can he? Track 10, Roll Right. The song opens with a pretty straightforward rock riff and some wonderful feedback. And aside from a nice funky break in the middle of the track, on the whole, the music is pretty straightforward rock, which never gets too flashy. So it nicely supports Zach and really lets him shine when he gets worked up and delivers the chorus with his vocal power turning up a level. Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words make the song about, well, um, a lot of things. (laughs) and a lot more of the same themes that we've already encountered throughout the album. They're not getting very creative here, are they? No, I don't know if it is or isn't creative. Thematically. They're not breaking the rage mold. They're sticking to their wheelhouse, doing what they do well. Cool. I think that only leads us to one more song, Song 11, The Year of the Boomerang. Which, like Tire Me, was also used in the movie Higher Learning. However, it was a bit more prominent, and it was on that soundtrack. At least an earlier version that is a little different from the version included here to close out Evil Empire. And I couldn't find a definitive answer as to if it was recorded as its own session for that film, or if it was something that came out of that failed first studio attempt in Atlanta. Either way, on that soundtrack, it was listed as Year of the Boomerang, whereas here it's listed Year of the Boomerang, with an A instead of an E. The, like Zach would say it. Yep. Year of the Boomerang opens with some Morello guitar work that Guitar.com aptly claims sounds somewhere between harmonious and broken white noise. And I can't think of a better way to describe it. This was number 17 on their list, and since they got the first part right, we'll let them continue to break down the track. Year of the Boomerang launches forward into a powerful strut, giving De La Roca a confident template to deliver a rapid-fire summation of the deep-seated prejudices at root in capitalist society. As Morello's supercharged riff carves the path forward, a sudden break allows him to quickly unfurl some clean, dreamlike arpeggios, which spiral around the ears before once again we lumber on the mechanical heft of the central rift. The pace quickens and Morello unleashes a riff that is pure headbanger bait. Boomerang is an unyielding end to an intense record, with contrasting guitar approaches wrenching out sounds that no other axe slinger would dream of exploring. It sounds like Guitar.com likes Tom Morello. Who doesn't? 
That's what I thought. And nobody answered, so obviously everybody agrees. Lyrically, the oversimplified breakdown of the words makes the song about class war. Okay. Speaking of class war, (laughs) somehow in 2019, this track got co-opted by the QAnon movement, claiming that the song, despite being released 25 years prior, was somehow all about supporting their movement down to claims that lyrics in the song are reference to the far right's contesting of Obama's citizenship status and birth certificate, which just might make this the craziest thing to come out of this album. Okay, I'm glad you said to come out of this album, because if you're going to say anything else, I was going to say you have not read QAnon. No, but like I said earlier, I'm not a fan of most people's politics, especially QAnon people. I'm glad we can agree on that one, Mark. That's just baffling. Isn't that special? You know what was special? What? Despite missing them at the LA Coliseum, I have seen Rage Against the Machine. I know you have. You want to tell us about it? We didn't see them in high school. Nope. But I did get to see them in 2007 as part of the Rock the Bells tour. Yeah. That show was August 18th of 2007 in the parking lot across McCovey's Cove from the ballpark where the Giants play whatever corporation owns it and has named it after themselves today. That was possibly one of the best weekends I've ever had. Nice, dude. So I was living in Houston at the time. The show was in San Francisco and I bought a ticket out. My buddy Pedro picked me up from the airport the night before and from the airport we went directly to the movie theater. There's a lovely old movie palace in downtown Oakland that's right off the lake and we saw super bad went to bed got up went into San Francisco and I'm not usually like a big hip-hop fan but that lineup was stacked with people who while I may not be the biggest fan of I still respect yeah pretty much I wanted to see Rage and I wanted to see Sage Francis and Sage Francis was opening between those two on the lineup was Wu-Tang Clan Cypress Hill Public Enemy Nas Mos Def and Talib Kweli Hieroglyphics MF Doom and a bunch of others nice there were a lot of solid performances that day. However, at one point in the middle of the day, it started to get hot on the asphalt, and so I went and found a nice little small grass patch right next to the water and laid down and took a nap. And then I got up and saw a bunch of other bands and Rage headlined, and they were actually amazing, and they sounded amazing. And then I flew home the next day, and my buddy Sean picked me up from the airport in Houston, and on the way home, I made Sean stop at the theater so we could see Superbad. Because <laughs> I enjoyed it enough that I had to see it a second time. That's funny, man. That was a really good weekend. All in all, what do you think of the album? Looking back on the album now with greater perspective, it's been over 25 years since the album came out. Musically, it still holds up, and it is an absolutely amazing rock album. Morello as a guitarist is phenomenal and deserves all the credit he could ever receive as an innovator of the instrument, and the rest of the band is just as solid. But as I was doing my research for the album, I kept coming across quotes like Zach talking about the album art. Yeah. Specifically, like how he talks about how the subject in the painting knows that the poor people aren't going to take it. And it kind of keeps making me think about this realization I had a few years ago that put me off watching dystopian future movies or reading Orwell, that kind of thing. And it was the realization that we can constantly see the writing on the wall. Yeah. But no matter how much we recognize problems, no matter how popular those movies are, how much those books get read, how many albums these bands sell. Even when we're being warned decades before something becomes a reality, somehow nothing gets better. Yeah, We're always making the same mistakes. And in this case, there's more poor now than nearly 30 years ago when Zach made that statement. But still, here we are. We're still waiting for an uprising and we're waiting for a revolution and we're waiting for a viable way to take the power back. I also came across some reviews that like to just say that the band was 25 years too early. And that's not a fair claim to make because it's not that the band was 25 years too early because the band was necessary in its day. The better question is, how have we had the band for 25 years and they're still relevant? You know, why are they still relevant? Why haven't we made changes so that Rage Against the Machine doesn't age so well? It's sad, isn't it? It is. And it's a very down note to leave this episode on. Like I said, the album musically is still great, and I still very much enjoy it. But to that end, though, I kind of wish I didn't. I'm with you. So, on that downer note, I am almost willing to bet money we are probably in agreement with our top three. But I am curious. What do you have on your list? Number three is Rolling Down Rodeo. Okay, we don't line up at all. Perfect. Keep going. Number two is People of the Sun. Okay. 
Number one, obviously Bulls on Parade. Okay. It's the only one that he has where he sings about toilet usage. Either drop the hits like De La Rose or get the cuss off the commode. All right, what are your three? Number three for me is Tire Me. Ooh, okay. Number two, Bulls on Parade. Okay. And number one, People of the Sun. Okay, so we had two of the same top three in different places. Yeah, I know that Jackie Onassis is also one of your favorite moments on the album, so I was thinking that it is maybe we were aligning on that. I do like People of the Sun a whole lot. I just like the message of Bulls on Parade. You have that as number one, number two, and I have them as number two and number one. We're not far off. And for me, it came down to, it's not that it's necessarily that much better of a song. It's just, it was the first Rage Against the Machine song I heard. It was my introduction to them. So I will give it bonus points for that. I think Bulls on Parade, I was thinking about this after we covered it. I think it's resonating a little bit more with me right now. There's the line, I walk the corner to the rubble that used to be the library, line up to that mine cemetery now. And it just feels very apropos with where we are with. We have these groups that are actively trying to censor libraries and remove books. And I've always had a problem with our, uh, I'll get political here, I've always had a problem with our budget and spending that we spend so much money on this industrial military complex. And he says, weapons, not food, not homes, not shoes, not need, just feed the war cannibal animal. That really sticks out with me, especially right now as we're seeing important things that people need funding for things like children's school lunches. Literally, there are people who are calling to end funding school lunches because it makes parents lazy, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's why I picked that one. I do like Jackie O's sunglasses, though. (laughs) Well, that was fun. And you know what, folks? I'm going to do a shameless ask here that we do not usually do, which is please, please, please write us a review. If you find our random babble interesting at all, I'd love for you to go ahead and write a review. Tell us what you think. I second that. It helps people find us. It helps us get a little bit more traction, hopefully, and get some more engagement. And I would encourage you to follow us on Instagram and let us know what you think. How has Rage been an important part of your life? And does this resonate with you? Let us know. Well, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Once Every Two Weeks. As a heads up, since we are coming into the holiday season, we, at once every two weeks, are going to be taking a little bit of a break, so it might be a little more than two weeks before we're back, but we will see you next year. Once Every Two Weeks is brought to you in part by Burrow Baracho Records. Burrow Baracho Records.